Listener Production. This podcast was recorded on the ancient lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation in Australia. I wish to acknowledge their rich and continuing culture and especially pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge and pay respect to any First Nations people from anywhere in the world who may come to hear this podcast. We hope that we may all come to walk with gentle feet, strong minds and compassionate hearts in this global village. No one wants to be a lousy dad. Aiming to be a good dad is great, but do you know what? Being a good enough dad is so much more important. I'm Maggie Dent, parenting educator, author and champion of boys and men, and this is The Good Enough Dad, where I chat with committed, caring, sometimes confused and often funny dads about all the ways they've discovered to be good enough at this parenting gig. My good enough dad today is Barry Dubois. Barry shows us some great DIYs that will give you a new lease on your lease. Just clearing the space has changed the dynamic. These kids don't have a backyard, but we're going to give them a bit of a swing. Yep, a good old-fashioned disc swing. (laughs) Barry's a TV presenter, possibly best known for his renovation skills on the living room. He's a mental health advocate, partner to Leone and dad to 11-year-old twins, Bennett and Arabella. He's a very open man and has shared his and Leone's fertility journey to have their twins and Barry's experience with multiple myeloma, a blood cancer. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the Good Enough Dad. Thanks for having me here. I love that intro earlier. You said uh, they're going to be a bit funny, a bit confused, a bit scared. I mean, if you're not all those things, you're not a good dad. (laughs) That's what I reckon. We wanted to own it. Okay, so Barry, give us an idea. What was your childhood like that you can remember? Everything about my childhood was beautiful, even the bad parts. And, uh, um, yeah, I lived in a home with a, with a mum that was an angel and a dad that was a, a dominant man, an alpha, an alpha that you don't see anymore. I will admit he had a bit of a problem with alcohol and that isn't that he, he was an alcoholic or anything. It just changed his psyche. Like I said, I love everything about my childhood and, and part of the resilience I have today is through the adversity I faced with my dad's um, reaction to alcohol. I always say, and you'll hear it probably 10 times in this talk, I wouldn't change anything about my life because if I didn't have it the way I had it, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be who I am and I love everything I've got. So uh, uh, we lived in a two-bedroom house, a little fibro house on a six-lane highway. It was full of love. Siblings? Yeah, brother and a sister. And we always had a, uh, we always had one extra, meaning my uncle lived with us for many years because my dad was from the country. There wasn't a lot of work in the country back then. So they would come to the city for work. Then he moved into a caravan in the backyard. It's like the castle, my place. (laughs) And, um, and my cousin was from Yass. Again, he's the same age as me. And uh, we had two other uncles. One was a mechanic, one was a carpenter. So I got the apprenticeship with the carpenter. He got the apprenticeship with the with the mechanic and that meant he had to move from Yass to Sydney and, and work yeah. and live with us. My brother, who's 18 months younger than me, Mick, and my beautiful sister Lizzie, who is uh, about five years younger than me. Yeah. 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 We had a gorgeous time, everything. It was a tiny little house and there was vacant blocks of land either side yes. and a big paddock behind. My dad was the guy that could build anything. So we couldn't afford much, but he could build anything. So we had, you know, Billy carts, go-karts, yeah. mini bikes that he'd manufactured. And when we were about 12, 13, 14, he would go down to Dollar Walls. That was a wrecking yard and buy us a $10 bomb and 
We'd drive around <laughs> around the paddock and it until until it stopped and the engine stopped. Then we'd rip the engine out, pull the doors off, and uh, oh, push it round. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was amazing. And, kind of uh, what we did on a farm. As yeah, well. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, what were your kind of Christmassy, Eastery gatherings with that kind of a you know the castle home? Can the you castle. remember those? Yeah, beautifully. Christmas is all about the children. <clears throat> as someone of means today, it, uh, it uh, affects me emotionally thinking about how tight my mum and dad had to be with money. Yeah. We got one present for the whole family. I don't remember, quite frankly, celebrating Easter. Yeah. I'm not sure. Oh, it I mean, wasn't a big thing. I just don't think it was a big deal. Don't even think we had chocolate eggs, did we? No, no I don't think it was a hope in hell we had chocolate yeah. eggs. I may be wrong about that, but Christmas was an amazing time and uh, birthdays for each of the kids was a big deal for mum and dad. They would sacrifice anything to make sure we had what, was required. So that that was a house, like I said, full of love and, and, and a beautiful structure, great discipline. Dad uh, worked always two jobs, but was always at the uh, sporting carnivals. If there was a play on at school, he'd make it. Mum was that typical mum, just like my beautiful wife today, Leone, in the PNC. She's in the tuck shop. She's doing the <laughs> fundraiser. She's picking other kids up from school and dropping them off. She's that, that trusted parent that uh, schools have, um, some schools are lucky to have a lot of those mm. parents, some schools not so many, but she's she's one of those mums that all the teachers know they can rely on, all the yeah. kids know her and love her. And uh, we're talking about my mum now or my wife, I'm not sure, they're the same person. Yeah. And the, the result of that is my two beautiful twins and, and their nature. Yeah, so tell me when you first met your partner, Leonie, mm. where, where did that happen? Interesting story. I'll back it up a little bit. I was a very successful builder in the western suburbs. We've had many building booms and economy explosions in my time. And this was one of those times, uh, the late 80s. I'd never been to the eastern suburbs. I I thought the richest guy in Australia was the only guy in our area that had a brick house. I had a real fetish for fibro there for a while, but uh, I could do anything with it. And there was a builder whose name was Michael and he had a brick home and I thought, he had to be one of the richest guys in the country. It was a giant <laughs> house. I was an early uh, member of the Master Builders Association and I got asked from an eastern suburbs builder, because I had a good reputation, would I price a job for him that he'd already priced and won? And when I told him my price to do the job off the plan, he said, listen, add 30% to that and you can have it. I said, really? He goes, yeah, because my price is double yours. So you can do it at 30% and that was one of those booms. So I had to uh, get myself to the eastern suburbs. It was actually Vaucluse. And uh, when I arrived in Vaucluse, it was a life-changing moment. Mm. I, I couldn't believe that people live like that. Yeah. I, I just, it was a really funny story. I know this is heading to how I met my wife, but this is in the first couple of weeks of my life is um, I pulled up at this place on Lower Village Road, Vaucluse. And the lady across the road, the alarm was going off and she said to me, can you help me? And I said, yes, what with? And she said, the alarm's going off. The back doors are open. You, I see you've got a ladder. Would you take it around the back, climb up on the balcony, go through the house and let me in? I can." I said, sure. So I raced over there like, like I would do for anyone up the thing. And as I'm climbing up the ladder, I'm just, I've got this harbour behind me. This house to me Remember that song, Hotel California? Yes. I imagined that that song was about this house. Yeah. It was, it was just, I said, people live like this? Did, really? This is incredible. And, and then I went across the road 
back to my client uh, and the client had all this stuff out on the street. It was uh, beautiful washing machines and dryers and fridges and stuff like that. And they were just throwing them out because they were getting new stuff and they were waiting for the council to come and pick it up. And I said, what do you want me to do with all this stuff? And they said, well, the council's going to come pick it up. And I said, that, I know that washing machine. It's, it's only like a year old. You go, yeah, but we're getting a new one. It's all integrated. And, and I said, oh, can, can I buy that? If you, my mum's still got that washing machine. That, you know, the <laughs> twin two, tub? Two, well, she had a twin <laughs> tub. She also had the one still that the rollers went oh, through to yes. dry the clothes out before you hung them out on the yes. line. She never seen a dryer. And they said, no, you can just have it. And I thought people are throwing away perfectly good things and they live like, mm. as they were, they were living like millionaires because they were millionaires. Yes. But I didn't, I'd never experienced that. So fell in love with that joint. I said, this is, if you're going to make it, this is where you've got to be. And the fibro moved yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, God. Fibro, I never saw it again. <laughs> but um, so what happened was I, I, first things first, I, I rented an apartment there in Vaucluse I couldn't believe how much money I was making. I couldn't believe the people I was surrounded by. I couldn't believe just the general vibe in the area. I mean, you were, they didn't seem to be worried about getting stuff knocked off and stuff like that. And then I discovered Bondi Beach. I mean, wow, what a place. Yeah, I lived on the Georges <laughs> River at Liverpool. So we used to go to these cafes, as you do. I'm, I'm an expert at it now. I, I'm an expert at the Bondi Cafe. I can do a latte, oat milk. I can do it decaf. Oh, I can do it all. So yeah, moth done mockers. Yeah. Everything, kinchy. I eat it all. <laughs> but I walked into this one cafe one day, which was uh, opposite North Bondi Surf Club, and there was this hot little chick behind the counter. Great little shorts on, beautiful legs and a big smile. And we chatted for about three hours and then her boyfriend came in. Uh, oh. so, so I left. But then I started going back there and um, that was that was Leonie. She really challenged me in a lot of ways. I thought for me, the, the social aspect of North Bondi was amazing. And I thought I'd done pretty good in the world and I knew I'd done it with nothing. And I kept saying, and, I, I'm, and, and, and I'm, <laughs> my close mate now, Pete Cahoon, who's, a, who's the architect on Better Homes and Gardens, yeah. I said to him, and he loves this story, I said to him, if I had grown up here, I would have been the best at everything because mm. you've got a beach, you've got the best fields here, you've got everything. I said, we had nothing and I did all right. Imagine yeah. how I would have went if I had grown up here. It would yeah. have been a classic. Anyway, I fell in love with Leonie and we were friends for about two years and then um, I courted her and uh, uh, pu- push came to shove, so to speak, and uh, we, we, we were together. So yeah. good. <laughs> Barry, how would you describe your relationship with Leonie? Because you've, <laughs> you've been through a lot together. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, she, uh, Leonie is a saint, there's no doubt about that. I think some of the hurdles that we had to jump through are incredibly trying on a relationship. I think IVF is the best relationship killer on earth. I think anybody that's going to go into that has to be very conscious of the, the support you need for each other, but by others for each other as well. We haven't talked that much about it, but I became very, very dark. The black dog had me by the throat for a while. And Where um, was that in this journey? Well, uh, you know, I had a terrible accident in 2000, broke my back in three places and my leg in a couple of places, broke a couple of fingers and a shoulder. And physical pain is a hard thing to deal with. We had a, a terrible incident of abuse within my family. 
which affected everyone in the family terribly. That's what I believe um, buried my mum in cancer. She had already had cancer, but she was doing really well, but that just drove her back into a terrible pit. And the last period of her life was a terrible one. So that was that my own personal mental pain. Then came grief. I lost mum and Leonie got cancer. So that again, seeing others in pain and then that all drove me to depression. And depression, it's not something you wake up on a Monday morning with. It takes a long time to go into it and you self-destruct. You manifest conversations which are horrific. I told Leonie several times that I, I couldn't be with her anymore. I didn't want to know her anymore. She was wrecking my life. I thought everybody in the world would be better off without me. And that's why I contemplated suicide. So Leonie, being Leonie, had great faith that the real barrier was in there somewhere. <laughs> and uh, she encouraged my friends to support me. She knew she had to take a backward step because it seemed everything she tried to do was making it worse. So it's a, how would I describe our relationship? It's one that's weathered some storms. It's faced adversity of its own, but it's one that now any storm in the future looks like a, a pee in the pond. I don't think if you've been through what we've been through together that anything could break it. It's interesting. We, we live in a household where we have very different often very different political views, which is funny. We can vehemently disagree. I don't respect another woman on earth like I do her, second to her be her mum, to tell you the truth. You know, I know I am what I am, it's because of her. And I like to think that maybe I'm a bit of a rock for her as well. And even though I've been a failure in so many ways for her, I am there if she needs me. And, uh, and I, I like to think I support her and, and I, she definitely supports me. Don't you think that's the most realistic relationship that we need, that no one's ever consistently, gloriously happy? Yeah. And we all have moments where we struggle, and that is when the other partner can hold us till mm. we come back, and then we can do the same for them is, you know, emotional that, honesty that, that's, is about That's how it, it has been, and I, I believe that our, our period in, in time is the reason we survived that. I do believe today, though, because we have lost, where so much of the society has lost its ability to be resilient. It's gotten so easy to walk away from things <laughs> that people are happy. Oh, okay, we've had the kids, I love the kids, but I'm out of here. And, uh, it's just, uh, there's a lot of that. It's not a moral thing. I just think that people, uh, society is losing the ability to take on things. Even though you retired early at 45, mm. life is certainly throwing you some curveballs, many that you've spoken about previously and the long journey to having children, Leonie having cervical cancer, losing your mum to cancer, your own diagnosis and treatment. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on each of those things. Mm. But what I'd like to know is what has been your biggest challenge when it comes to being a dad? Good question. Um I just want to clear something up. I did mm. retire when I was 45 years old. And then you went back. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I retired for a bunch of reasons. I had plenty of money, yep. but I was also manically depressed. Okay. I, I was not well. Like you said, there's a whole podcast in that. But I realised that I had to make some changes in my life. Where I was wasn't making me happy. So, uh, so I had to go on. So it, uh, 
Challenges of being a dad is the question. Yes. Challenges of yeah. being a dad. Well, for us, obviously, this isn't an answer you're going to hear very often. Well, maybe you do, and that'll be a celebration. There is absolutely no challenge in being a dad for me. I um, with every inch of everything I am, absolutely love and cherish every second I have as a dad. I went close to 19 years trying to have those children. We did probably 16 miscarriages, 12 of those were through IVF. So that, you know, ever familiar scream from the bathroom, which you automatically know as a miscarriage, as well as that, the grief you face when you lose a both your parents and you haven't, um, you haven't had children. Yeah. Uh, and it's then huge, isn't it's it? huge. It's, it's really huge. hard. Um, Come an orphan kind of figure. Yeah. And, and, and you want, so you, or I think as a parent, a lot of parents think that their mum and dad are going to help them out and mine were gone. But more importantly than that, they didn't get to see those beautiful yeah. children. When you went through uh, as much as we did and the journey was as long as we did, there is nothing else on earth that I want. When people say to us, oh, we're getting our first weekend away from the kids, I think I couldn't think of any. I hate being away <laughs> from the kids. Uh, we were at a dinner party when the babies were one year old and, um, and we, I think it was the first dinner party we'd been to without the children. No, you know what? There must have been two because we wouldn't have done it before yeah. too. They came everywhere with us. And someone said, oh, you know, we're going we're to have a weekend away. And, and we couldn't wait to get out of the dinner party. Yeah. And when we got in the car, I said, can you think of anything worse yeah. than leaving the kids for a weekend? She says, I couldn't. And Leon said, she couldn't do it. I could not do it. So I'm, I'm afraid there has been no challenge. Some of it's been spectacular. Some of it's been amazing. Some of it's been heart-wrenchingly beautiful. And all of it fills me with pride. So there's, there's not one second of that that I find challenging. Can you remember the moment that those two beautiful babies arrived? Of course. Your, you know, with yeah. you and Leonie after all yeah. those. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Paint I do. Paint the picture for us. Paint the picture. Well, as you know, the, the children were born through surrogacy. Yep. Uh, and, and, yeah. and that was our seventh attempt at surrogacy. But we were there with Barty, as we described Barty to the children. Barty lent us her tummy. You know, they were born through cesarean. Arabella was struggling a little bit because... Some people might know this, you probably know this, but when you come out through the birthing canal, it squashes a lot of the fluid out of your lungs. And a common thing, I believe, when through cesarean is that that doesn't get squashed out so you can have some trouble breathing. So Arabella was in that situation. She likes to say that she's the oldest too because she came out first. And I said, effectively, you were just on top and (laughs) and the easiest to get out. But we'll go with your story. But she was in a little oxygen tent for that. Bennett was just screaming his little heart out. And um, it's so funny on that one. Like I was adamant that Bennett would be uh, circumcised as well. Yeah. yeah without doubt. You know, yeah. that was, that was going to be the case right up to the second that they were born and they tried to take him away from me huh. for a circumcision. I said, not a chance yeah. you are touching this kid with a scarf. Right. Yeah. Not a chance, you know. Interesting. So, yeah, no chance that was going to happen. Okay, here I go, I'll back straight on my words. One of the challenges was, and it wasn't from the children, but when a child is born through surrogacy in another country, they're an illegal alien. Yeah. First things first, uh, they have to do a, a DNA check of that child because I've already done the DNA check. 
Yeah. We have to determine that this is my child. Yeah. So that means I have to scratch yeah. the bottom of his little mm-hmm. dead little feet, which I just, I said, no, no. There's <laughs> got to be another way to do this. And, but they did it anyway. Then we've got the DNA. It's proven this baby is mine. It's all prearranged. Mm-hmm. There was 300 pages of documents that were all certified and all that. Yeah. But then what I've got to do is take the DNA results and all these papers and all that to Delhi to the embassy to get an Australian passport for them. But before I go, I've got to get passport photos for the babies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the babies are like 24 hours old, right? <laughs> and a little bit older because uh, I will share another beautiful experience about uh, having those children in India. I know lots of people listening to this will be having preconceptions about what the, the Indian health system is like. It leaves ours for dead. Oh, really? Yeah. The hospital we are in makes anything in Australia look stupid. Wow. The rich people in that country are the richest people in the world and they have had more kids than anyone else in the world. So they've got a clue. You know what I mean? So much so, this beautiful hospital where we were, on the top floor is this gorgeous art deco glass floor. It's huge. It's like the top floor of a hospital, beautiful art deco construction and a glass roof. Because if a child has a bit of jaundice uh, or something like that, they'll have it ah, exposed to vitamin D. Natural vitamin Natural sunlight. D. N- natural vitamin D. They're not... Stuck under a light. Yeah. Well, yeah. So they, they were up there for quite a period, but then it must have been the second day. So 48 hours old, we had to get the passport photos. And they've got this Indian photographer came in. And I shouldn't say Indian photographer. A, a different human to me was touching my children. <laughs> and he kept blowing in their eyes so their eyes would open. Oh, so we could get a photo. And I'm thinking, stop frigging mm. blowing your filthy air on my kids. <laughs> but sure enough, they got their little passport photos. It was hilarious. And off I went to Delhi to get their passports and then we were on our way home. But um, that was one, yeah. that was one little challenge, yeah. but n- nothing they did. So how have you found people's reactions to the surrogate birth of children? Uh, Are they just so glad for you, the ones who knew you? Y- yeah, of course, of course. You may or may not remember, but at the time the children were born, the conservative government of the day was going through, they were really politicising yep. surrogacy yeah. and Realistically, it's because, and I don't know what your politics are, but I don't really care. They didn't want same-sex people to have children. So the way same-sex people have children is through surrogacy. So they banned surrogacy. It had nothing to do with anything except for their narrow-minded right-wing attitude. So that was difficult. But our kids are our life and Mm. and, and my children are like anybody else's children. And I will say this, uh, Arabella has been told that her mother's not her real mother. Uh, But, you know... Again, I don't back away from that. I'm, I'm in the middle of an e-book myself on raising resilient children. A little bit of adversity mm-hmm. isn't, isn't going to be a problem. In fact, a lot of adversity, what I went through, created a pretty strong person. And really, the adversity of living with the uncertainty of your life, how do your kids deal with that? What do they know? No, Nothing. They, uh, so you, we get ca- sick at times. Ca- ca- yeah, exactly. A yeah. couple of things there. You said uh, living with the adversity of not knowing. Well, I, no one knows, I, do I'm we? I'm in the room with two, three, <laughs> there's three of us in the room. Not one of us know when we're going. Exactly. There's Yes, there's no, no certainty. One. But I, I think the difference uh, between myself and you is the, 
is the simple fact that I have faced mortality, so I do cherish yeah. life. Yeah. I cherish it. And I'm very, um, very thankful for every second and very conscious that I need more seconds, particularly with my children. I don't believe children understand mortality. Maybe Bennett and Arabella at 11, 12 will start to work it out, but I don't, I don't believe so. So there's no sense talking about the fact that one day I might die. Yeah. I mean, yep, you're right. Yep. You know, I've had to go through treatment a bit and I've lost my hair and all stuff like that. And, and we just explain like anybody with half, uh, half a, a sense of common sense would say is, you know, daddy's... Daddy's not well today, but we're going to do everything to make him yeah. as, as well as he can. His we're going to not well. We're going to eat some good food. We're going to exercise a little bit more. We're going to not eat rubbish. And 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 yeah. I, t- I talked to a couple of eleven year olds like they're eleven. You know, That's right. uh, I have listened to a few podcasts where people rave on for a half an hour about how they sat them down and told them that mummy was going to die one day. And I think, wow, that would have been water off a duck's back because they don't know what death is. You know, you've got well, to think, you've got if to... they've been following me, they will, because I keep telling families to get a guinea pig so it dies. Yeah. They get a concept early. Uh, uh, Chris Brown <laughs> told me that as well. I think that's a great idea. Because otherwise it's a concept that doesn't mean anything. Chris Brown, the, the Bondi yeah. vet, Dr. Chris Brown, uh, one of my closest yep. friends, he said that to me once. Being a vet is often the first time that a child experiences mortality. Mm-hmm. So he's, mm. he's often there and it's taught him a lot about life oh. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. What are your main worries about raising your two beautiful children in today's world? Do you have any particular worry? Leave your health away because, mm. like mm. I said, that's just still a... Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm a pretty positive character. I do think about the world I live in. I do think that the technology age has really mm. ramped up in the last 10, 11 years. And listen, I've got two Instagram accounts for both my kids. They don't have them. I have them and I'm, I'm logging memories for them now. And I love social media. I love all that stuff. But you do have to monitor the amount of decisions you're not making. You can't allow things to become white noise because then you lose the ability to resolve. If you lose the ability to resolve... We weaken society. And if I've got any worries, it's that society is becoming weaker. And my Mm. goal before I go is to do whatever I can to do to show society how to live better and to lead by example when it comes to my children. Absolutely. So I want to know, what did you learn from your own dad that is helpful to you as a dad today? What did you take forward from him? That's a, you've asked a lot of good questions uh, and it's really interesting because I, I learned self-confidence from my dad. He believed he could do anything and he had us believing it as well. I've told this story many times is that it wasn't until I was about 13 or 14, I realized that my dad, see, my dad would say, you're a Dubois, you're the best at everything. Well, I actually thought because we were Dubois, we were the best at everything. (laughs) So that when I realized that he was just saying that to make us think we could do anything, that was a bit confusing for me. Mm -hmm. But but it only took those 14 years to give me confidence that lasted me a lifetime. I will take on anything. I'm prepared for anything. I've tried to instill that as best I can with the kids as well. I'd like to talk to you about it because you're more an expert than (laughs) I am. But we all say we don't want to mould our kids. But we're all trying to mould our kids. <laughs> you know, it's as simple Absolutely. as that. Absolutely. 
Bennett is, is so much like me when I was a little kid, it's not funny. And I say that, okay, now I'm going to have to wind it back. <laughs> I think about me when I was 10. I was so sensitive. I was such a dear little boy, okay? You're a lamb. Yeah. Not a rooster. But you grew yeah. in that. Okay, I like that. Yeah, yeah maybe I wasn't a rooster. And then okay? you got to get a bit of rooster and you did. Well, I became a massive rooster. <laughs> Some might say. <laughs> but you cold. don't lose the lamb. <laughs> uh, that I, sensitive I, pit is still yeah, inside it's you. it's still there. Yeah. But what I want to make sure, because Bennett is so sensitive, he doesn't, he, he just will put everybody up before he puts himself up, whereas... My dad was a champion boxer as well, and wow. so, so I could fight. And he taught us that. He taught, you know, when I was 12, we were hitting bags, and I could throw a straight punch. And then I, then the rooster took over the lamb, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yep. I'm very conscious with, uh, with Bennett, particularly. What is it we do that, like, because so many of the little boys in his class as well, they're such sensitive, little, gorgeous things. Mm-hmm. Why do we turn them into these little rough nuts, you know? That's, and, uh, that's the conditioning, isn't it, of the world? They get all these messages. Yeah, these you know, messages. And so, so I'm very conscious. That, beautiful. I'm very conscious of the messages that Bennett's getting. You and, can be both. You can be strong and you can be sensitive. Yeah. Whereas in the past, men and boys were encouraged to be strong, mm. but sensitive was weak. I'm going to ask you a quick question mm. then. I believe that little boys get their, their man body between 11 and 15. The, the shoulders and chest that I got and the strength that I got between sort of 11 yep. and 15 is, is what I, I was always, I had big shoulders, I was a strong guy. So just recently I've just started, it's been a real bonding thing for me and Benny as well, so we just do some push-ups each night, we do a few sit-ups together and stuff like that because I want him to have build, a healthy build, body, yeah, build his core, have a mm. healthy body and he's a great little sportsman. I remember two years ago, I showed him some video of uh, my old boxing gym and some little kids in there going whack, whack, whack with the pads. And, and I said, Daddy, that's, that's one of Daddy's old trainers, baby. And he said, yes, oh, Dad, that's so cool. That's so cool. I said, oh, really? I said, do you want to, do you want to go to that gym? We'll, we'll do a little. He goes, no, I wouldn't want to do that, Dad. No way, I wouldn't want to do that. Now, I was a little disappointed he said that. But then I thought, you know what? I hope he never, ever gets in that situation. But then the other part of me thinks, what if someone tries to take advantage of him? Or what if someone tries to push him around, you know? So it's a real, that's... It is a I, You know, I started off saying there was no struggle. That's my struggle. That's, that's a bit of a struggle. Yeah. Can uh, I say one thing yeah. on that? Because yeah. the fact that he feels so secure and safe with your relationship was he was okay to say no. He didn't need oh. to please you to make sure you kept loving him. Yeah, oh, totally. Which yeah. I think is beautiful. But trust me, a couple of years down the track when he's got a bit more testosterone going, mm. it might it might be a very different Tes- thing. Testosterone's the, the yeah. ingredient, isn't Ooh, it? Yeah, because yeah, starts pouring I, in soon. It'll start pouring in soon, I'm sure. You don't like his dad, will be full of it. You've taught me some of the things you, your dad taught you, which mm. is amazing. What was something your dad did that you've chosen not to do? So you've chosen to be a different dad. Obviously, there's one fairly big one. Yeah. I'm conscious of what all kids think of alcohol. I I think we live in a pretty relaxed world when it comes to what we can do in front of children when it comes to alcohol. And like I said, my dad was the most beautiful human on earth, but he became a different human with alcohol and he didn't realise it, you know. 
So I'm just very conscious of that sort of thing. I said to myself, I'll never drink in front of my children. I just don't. And they'll, they'll tell everybody that I don't drink. But I remember we were at, at their children's godmother, Lorna's, uh, Lorna's 50th birthday. And I love having a beer with Bill. That's her husband, Bill and Lorna. I do love having a beer with him because we have old-fashioned good old chats, you know. And whenever we're with Bill and Lorna, uh, the kids are always with us. So I've decided, okay, well, Billy's having a beer, so I'm going to have a cider, you know, thinking it's not alcoholic. And Leone walks into the room while I'm giving Bennett a get about his 10th swig of this cider. <laughs> Effectively, Ben's drunk more of it than I have, but it's like a 6% alcohol. Yeah. She said, what are you doing? She, I said, well, it's just cider. Don't worry. She goes, that's alcoholic. And I go, oh, no, like... My quest to not Perfect. ever drink in front of him. And the first time I do, I'm feeding more into him than, than me. Well, that's perfect because my next question no, let me was, going to, be, hang on, story. was a, going to be when did you have a parenting fail? So we've got that, that, that covered that, now. That was my fail. Go back and continue. That was my parenting fail. Funny. Benny still talks about that because his mother will <laughs> never let me live it down. But the other day this happened. I've got to tell you this story. is a cracker. And I love the, all Bennett's little mates. They're great. One of his little mates gets in the car the other day on the way to basketball training. As soon as he gets in the car, they've always got something to tell each other. And he goes, Bennett, you know what I'm going to do as soon as I'm 18? Bennett goes, no, what? Like, so excited. He said, yep, going to do a shoey. He goes, oh, yeah, wow. Bennett goes, what's a shoey? <laughs> and uh, I'm just driving. They're all in the back seat. He goes, well, you go to a nightclub. You get in the middle of the dance floor, you take your shoe off, you fill it up with beer and you drink it there on the floor. You skull the whole thing. I'm just going, oh, my God, you know, like you're killing me, Hugo. And, and um, Bennett goes, wow, wow. Like Bennett doesn't really know what alcohol is. And he says to me, Dad, did you do a shoey when you were 18? Can you imagine the things I did? Yeah. I said, well, I tried to steer away from stupid things, mate, you know, trying to say <laughs> the right thing. Uh, and I'm thinking about now, like the yard glasses we used to drink yes. from and throw up. Oh, God, old, I remember those. Old port and crap. But um, stole my mate's uh, <laughs> father's home brew thing. We went drank 12 <laughs> bottles in one night. But anyway, then Hugo says to Bennett, Bennett, you'll be 18. You can do whatever you want. And I went, <laughs> So that was funny. I uh, love it. Now, I'm just going to throw a tip in there about keep picking them up and taking them for rides as you go over this bridge to manhood because you, know, you can ask your son what's going on, how is he, whatever, good day. And then in the car, you catch up with everything. You just don't say anything. You keep driving, mm. keep driving. You go the long way home, man, you catch up with everything that's going down. You just don't say anything. You just... Fantastic. Yeah, I love taking the boys <laughs> to training and picking them up. From I stay at training and watch them train. I, yeah. I watch it all. We all have really big fears and mm. worries. Mm. Is there one fear that that you hold about, you know, parenting and raising your not two parenting. beautiful kids? The only, pe the only fear I have is not being here for them if they need me. Okay. I think it's very different for someone who's, who, who's been told he's got three months to live. And I understand what mortality is. I think most people in the world are blessed with the fact that they're not. And um, there's not a day that goes by that I don't worry about what it's going to be like the day I leave. Yeah. You're also an older dad. Sure, so 63. Tell me, yeah. tell me what advice do you have out there for that? The fact is 
is there advantages at becoming a dad at that age compared to being a 24-year-old young man who's become a dad? What, yeah, are, you, what yeah. are your thoughts? I think, I think one of the advantages I've got as an older dad and a dad that's um, had the misfortune of facing mm. mortality is that I do live every second like it could be my last. And that's a gift. Mick, my brother, is the grandfather of Bodie, who's the same age as Bennett and Arabella. Most grandparents see more of the grandchildren than they did of their own kids because they were working. They were trying to forge careers. Mm-hmm. Well, I did all that. And the only thing I didn't have in life was children. And now I have them. I, uh, I, you know, my, my only fear is that I just want society to be stronger because it does take a tribe to raise a family. And at the moment, we're not acting like tribes. We're acting like enemies. And uh, that scares me. Yeah, I think the polarisation that we're going through in everything that happens now is, um, is it's horrific. It's, it's terrible for human nature. I bet you've got a tribe, though, around your family because you're conscious and aware of that, that it's not just me and Leonie raising these two children. We're all co- co-parenting each other's kids, which is why you're picking them up. Yeah. I, and you're I all think, part of each other's lives. I think you can recreate it in pockets. It mm. just isn't going to be the whole neighbourhood. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think we do what we do because we do what we do. I don't think society is as empathetic as it used oh, to be. Oh, God, no. I mean, we'll jump into a fundraiser, sure, and give some money. But what I'm talking about is humanity. I think it's humanity that's taken a bit of a dive. Regardless of your politics, I don't think our morals are in the same place as they were. I just think we should be a little bit more morally sound I think we should just be looking out for each other a little bit more. And, and whilst I get what you're saying that, yeah, well, I'm in community groups and, and all those things, but um, unfortunately I think at the moment when the going gets tough, the, 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 the neighbourhood uh, gets going. Not my neighbourhood and not a specific neighbourhood. I'm just saying as a society, I don't think we're, I don't think we're societally as strong as we used to be. Yeah, I totally agree with yeah. you on that one. Now it's time for a big dad brag. Mm. I can see you do lots of great things. But what do you think is your biggest parenting win, mm. either with either of them or both of them? What do you reckon you need that little trophy for, I can give you for being the best dad? One thing I've done particularly I've been conscious of with both the children is not saying to them too often that I'm proud of them. Yeah. I was told this by a friend, Kamal, who's a, a really nice guy. And I'm like all parents, I want to shower my kids in praise. But if a child then realizes that he's doing it so he's praised by you, then later on in life, he needs to be praised by someone else and then he needs to be praised by someone else and then someone else. But what I was very conscious of doing, particularly when it's, they started school, was not saying, I'm proud of you for going to school today or proud of you for how you went in that competition. I would say, I think you did really well in that competition. Were you proud of yourself? And it's something I've instilled in both of them for a long time and they're very conscious that they have to be proud of themselves and that's what will make me happy. I think it was a great tip that was given to me that you make sure that they don't need praise. They just need to satisfy themselves. That's been a real win because a couple of months ago, it might have been last season, 
Bennett played one of the best games he's ever played in basketball at the time and um, they got beat by a team that were just better than them on the day. And Bennett, who who did used to have a tendency to drop his head, said to his team, guys, we should be really proud of ourselves today. Yeah, and I, uh, and, and I thought, that'll do me. That is, that is really. He said, we, we played as good as we could yeah. play against that team. Let's face it, he was like nine and a half when he said it. So that's, that's, Can you see that exact messaging you've been giving? Because mm. when we, we've still got too much behaviourism around that says if you're not praising the hell out of your kids and giving them stickers and stuff, then they won't grow to be okay. And that actually works with rats. Mm. And it's the same as if I don't punish them when they're doing the wrong stuff, they won't learn and grow. And we mm. know that's also rubbish because mm. kids need discipline and teaching mm. and guiding. Mm-hmm. But when we make them... Uh, needing us to be proud all the time, mm, that pressure is, un- and that's exactly what I'm hearing from teenagers today, yeah. is the fact if mum and dad aren't happy with me, then they don't love me. Mm. So I feel that's a horrible burden. And my other tip in that space is I think we need to focus on stroking the spark that's in our kids, which is what naturally gives them joy. Can, can you explain it to me? Yeah, so when we have a spark, it's something we're really passionate about. Like it's it's like Bennett when he plays basketball, mm. right? You look at their face afterwards. If your son or daughter loves music. So sometimes we get so hooked on this whole test-driven education system that we think it's the grades and the marks mm. that will bring them what they need to get to the next mm. level. But we know mental health comes from what are the neurochemicals in my brain doing? How am I feeling? And when I feel crap, if I have a spark, and it might be racing a motorbike, it might be cooking, it might be walking your dog. In other words, it's not something that's measurable by a test. That's it. It can make a lot of difference in the pressures of the transformation journey of adolescence because there's so much change going on and we've created a toxic world that we're marinating them in. And they are worried. They're incredibly worried. You're very scared. Very much very so. Scared. So one of the things that came up during COVID when people were in lockdown was I kept on saying, you cannot work full-time from home and your children do schooling from home full-time. I'm no, sorry, it's impossible. It's impossible. And there are going to be times I want you to go, it's all too hard. We're just switching off for an hour or two, go watch a movie on the couch with your kids and with some popcorn. They'll remember that. They'll remember that from COVID. So we have to create those memories that matter. And often the memory stokes the spark. Because when I worked in full-time counselling and I was working with a, the teen who was expressing suicidal ideation... The spark had gone out. There was not mm. a spark. And so yeah. they are fragile in that window. That's it. So that's what I keep saying. Gestures of kindness, fun, laughter. We've got to be able to lighten up a lot more in that space. But we've got to be very conscious of that too with this working from home and, mm. and all that sort of stuff. There's got to be a separation there. Work is not your life. You know? Isn't that one of the biggest challenges for dads traditionally? Yeah, it would be. Because they're it, still conditioned that my job is to do, you know, earn the significant, even though that's... You know, that's a pretty big generalisation now where women are earning as much. But they tell me all the time it's my biggest struggle is I still feel that's my responsibility and yet I want to spend more time with my kids. Have you got any tips for dads who yeah, struggle yeah, with that? I, yeah, I, I do. I'll put it to you this way. There's always a backstory, isn't there? When we were in World War One, the smartest guys in the room, let's call them the code breakers, they were trying to stop the war in the war. I mean, these guys had more pressure on them than we could ever know. We could ever know. Well, those guys made between 250 and 350 decisions in a day. And they had to resolve all those decisions. And if they didn't, they had to reapproach them the next day. 
They were the smartest guys and that was the toughest time in life. If we went through a world war now, we'd fold in a heartbeat. Whereas today you and me will make between 30 and 60,000 decisions or face that many issues. So as a human species, we're losing the ability to resolve things. We're teaching ourselves that it's easier to just not bother with it. No, don't, don't engage in Leave that all the tabs open. You leave all the tabs open, exactly. So what I'm very conscious of doing is before I go from one space to another, whether that's from work to family, family to, to work, from the dinner table to bed, I just do some breath work. I do some meditation, but I'll always give myself a, a three to six minute transition so that I can end that portion I'll make some notes of what I have to do tomorrow and then I close mm. that book. That book is done until tomorrow. And then the same when I, when I leave home. I, I think you just got to be very conscious not to bother taking on too much that you can't handle it. If you're trying to do an email before you go into home or you're doing one at the dinner table or you leave the phone on in your house or you're doing work in the house and then walk into the kitchen and get a drink and there's kids doing homework, we're just not separating these things and we do need that separation and that structure. I think that's one of the trickiest things that's happened to modern parenting is that work doesn't finish, so you finish at five. It comes home with us. Yeah. So we, and then good people say, look, I'll catch up a few work emails while I'm here. So in other words, we, you're exactly right. We haven't left that space. That's it's still right. in our head while we come home to be a, a mother or a father. Yeah. And that's, it's, <laughs> therefore we're not present. And then sadly... I have seen parents say to their kids, don't you get it? If I don't get this done, we don't have Christmas. That's incredibly destructive. You got to separate that stuff. If there was just one thing, you're only allowed to choose one, Barry. Mm. If there's one thing you want your kids to learn from you, what is it? That they can do anything. Great. Mm. Be anything, do anything. Yeah, totally. They don't have to please you. Make you proud? No, they'll please me if they do. If they do That's what it. makes them happy, they'll please me. Love it. Uh, if you could go back and give your pre-dad self before these little babies arrived some advice mm-hmm. about being a dad, what advice would you give yourself? I didn't become a dad till I was fifty-two. I years know, old. I know, but I'm just saying. I faced so. manic depression. <laughs> I had cancer twice. I had sixteen miscarriages. My wife had had cancer. Yeah. I'd lost both parents. What I'd would been you say broke, to him? I'd been rich. What would you say to him? A guy knew a lot. I yeah, got to tell you. He, seriously. <laughs> um, what I would say to him is that patience is your best tool. Just rely on patience and, and raise children at the speed of patience. And it was something I read in a book, but I love it. I try to do as much as I can with the children, but I don't try and achieve anything with the children. What I mean by that is my Bennett and Arabella had their baby rakes from Bunnings and they just loved <laughs> raking the leaves with me. But that would just be a disaster. So if I needed to rake the leaves... I rake the leaves, but if I want to be with my children, I say, let's rake the leaves. And then when they go to sleep, I go out and tidy up the yard because you say, guys, I need to get this in a pile. No, you don't. You need to enjoy every second of that little beautiful thing developing. An experience. So making memories that matter. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, the motto of my life, making memories. Barry, 
Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's lovely, lovely chat. It's a good chat. You and I could probably chat for a few more hours. If you want to stay on the topic of my children, I'll talk forever. (laughs) Barry Dubois, TV presenter and mental health advocate. Barry has become so wise over the years and had so many wonderful things to say that I think it's definitely worth holding on to some of those. So let's grab a few of those wonderful tips for our Good Enough Dad checklist. The first one I'd like us to hold in our minds is that (laughs) you don't have to praise every little thing that your kids do because sometimes that actually turns them into praise junkies rather than building resilience. We might acknowledge it, we just don't need to praise quite so much. The second tip was the best place sometimes to learn what's happening in your kids' lives is actually in the car on your way home. So make sure sometimes you drive the long way home. And point number three, sometimes when we're faced with our own mortality, we can review our life. And if that's one of the messages we get from Barry is cherish every moment anyway. Every single moment with your children is a gift. I'm Maggie Dent, and this is The Good Enough Dad. You can follow us on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts.